you know, there are lots of elections we've covered where you can say X said, you know, this election was stolen, I completely object to this. That's most. And there's a, <laughs> you know, there's a suspicion yeah. that it might not have all been yeah. kosher, but that's all it is. And then, you know, the, the inaugurated and, and, and on we go. Yeah. And here was a possibility and only a possibility because the story may not have been, A, may not have been true and B, may not have been verifiable. Here was a possibility to, po to, to possibly a kind of a smoking gun mm -hmm. if this really did come off the servers. So we went about it in the only two ways we really had, which is on the ground reporting. Mm -hmm. Um, and data analysis. David Pilling is the Africa editor for the Financial Times. In January of 2019, his team broke a story on massive fraud in elections in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. For people who care about the country, above all its citizens, this was a highly depressing moment. Not just because it happened, but because the transfer of power was cynically accepted by virtually all international observers. But the FT's intervention was a point of light amidst all that. It was solid reporting, it presented the data carefully, but more than that, it applied the same standard of seriousness that we would expect in a newspaper of record reporting anywhere else in Europe, in North America. It avoided the cliches, it avoided the silliness, and it did the necessary homework. So that was the jumping off point for this episode. And really, it is the perspective of a massively experienced journalist on how the international press engages with highly marginalized places. What is newsworthy? What is the role of foreign media as a, a fourth estate in dysfunctional media environments where nobody else can really play that role of, of scrutiny of governments and the private sector? What were the practicalities, finally? What were the steps of getting an explosive story like this one verified and published? This is One Step Forward. My name is Ian Quick. There is a bit of wind noise on this one. Uh, it disappears after a few minutes when we gave up on the London weather and went inside. Please enjoy. I do generally start these in the same place. If you meet someone socially, and I'm thinking of the developing world here in Kampala or Addis or wherever, how do you describe, how do you explain what you do for a living, what your job is? Well, I'm a, the editor for Africa for the Financial Times. I mean, I think uh, it depends who you're talking to, obviously, but the DFT is a brand that's relatively, yeah. you know, well-known. We're writing about Africa or, you know, if I were in Uganda, I'd say we're writing about Uganda um, for uh, an international audience. Mm -hmm. uh, the audience is sort of policymakers, business people, um, people who sort of want real factual information. Mm -hmm. So if I were trying to sort of sell the FT, which is not exactly what you asked, but I would kind of say, you know, there may be less sort of spin um, um, that our readers sort of want to know what's going on, the unadorned truth, an objective truth. Now, of course, I realize that words like the truth and objective um, are deeply problematic words and um, one can only 
even aspire to such things knowing that they actually don't really exist mm -hmm. and because everything is selection and emphasis and context and all the rest of it. But I would say that, you know, that we try and cover um, Africa seriously for an international audience and, and uh, coverage that I hope would be of interest, you know, in the countries and to the people um, that we write about, um, you know, and who are actually part of the, part of the story. So it's not just, you know, Uganda out. I hope that we're also, we would also write stuff that might be of interest mm. um, uh, in Uganda itself by bringing, I guess, a, um, you know, a different perspective, certain kind of set of criteria, mm. um, and maybe a certain access, obviously, Lots of journalists in Uganda might be able to get the same access as us, but, but certainly we have pretty good access. It's a very broad remit, geographically, socially, culturally, etc., with you know, a relatively small chunk of the FT, let's say, to fill. How do you go about setting editorial priorities? I don't know if that's the right word, but setting mm -hmm. a direction for that coverage. Well, look, there are 50 countries. Um, we cover politics, business, economics, we also cover arts, social affairs. So, I mean, you know, we could run a story about uh, Liberian pop music or we could run a story about uh, statistics in Tanzania or we could run a story about a beer company in Burundi or a beer company in Ivory Coast, which would actually be very different stories, um, uh, even, even just um, sticking to the beer company. So you have this kind of panoply of things one could write about. Um, so that's a problem. So it's narrowing down. So how do you narrow down? No, I'm, I wouldn't claim at all that there is, um, you know, sort of a, an objective rationale for how, how one, one goes about that. And journalism, um, perforce, is something that, you know, you react to news, you react to things that are happening, you react to interests, you react to the last thing you heard, the last person you met, mm -hmm. happenstance, of course. But what are the kind of broad criteria? So... Uh, I mean, the FT is a business paper and uh, we do write about um, economies as kind of macro economies. Mm -hmm. So one of the first things you'd have to say is, well, we have to look at the biggest economies uh, in Africa. Uh, you know, I cover sub-Saharan Africa, which you could say is a kind of a false, yeah. um, uh, sort of false definition to start with. So I don't cover um, African north of the Sahara. Um, but of the countries I do cover, uh, South Africa, Nigeria, Angola, uh, and Ethiopia are the biggest four yeah. uh, economies. Uh, Kenya closely following, uh, probably Tanzania closely following that. Yeah, I mean th those are the uh, those are the um, big economies. Yeah. Historically, I think Nigeria and uh, South Africa have always been, you know, sort of prominent in our coverage. That's partly because uh, as long as we've been covering Africa, which is you know I think more than half a century. Um, we've had someone based in South Africa. We've had someone based, as long as I can remember, in Lagos. Mm -hmm. um, so that's at least 30 years of the FT and probably longer. Mm -hmm. Traditionally, we've had someone based in Kenya. Um, that's probably just because of the British colonial ties and that Kenya was thought to be a kind of, you know, Nairobi is a hub and whatever. Increasingly, you could argue that it should be in Addis because Ethiopia is, I think, of increasing importance and, uh, and interest. And Ethiopia is definitely a story that I would add to those two that I've just mentioned, just because I think, you know, it's 105 or 110 million people. Mm -hmm. It's a country that's had a sort of an economic development plan that's a real plan, um, mm -hmm. and that's had certainly its massive share of problems, but, but that you can see a kind of a plan taking shape and you can see things happening. You can see certain results based, at least rhetorically, on a kind of Asian development 
um, um, model. Mm -hmm. uh, Angola is a country that we ought to have covered more. We haven't covered it as much as those other ones I've mentioned, partly because of access. It's just been quite hard to get into, probably because it's a Lusophone country. And so, you know, there isn't the obvious interest in Angola. Mm -hmm. But since it's become an oil economy, it is a, is, is a sort of much bigger interest to um, mm. FT readers. Then after that, you know, it's kind of, I suppose it's sort of what interests you, what's interesting about a country, what's interesting about a story. Um, and that can really range. I mean, you know, we've covered Rwanda quite a lot. It's a tiny country, but it's a kind of interesting model. You know, you've got a very interesting leader. You've got um, success. Many uh, people would say that's a euphemism. Many people would say that's a euphemism, but it, but he isn't a very interesting leader, uh, euphemistically or not. Uh, and yeah. it has been successful, I would say, not not, not euphemistically. And yeah. um, of course, that, that that comes with controversy, and it comes with very different points of view. But it's also very interesting. Um, you know, how do you build an economy on you know in a country where you had a genocide? And again, there's this kind of very deliberate, meticulous planning which makes it uh, interesting. I mean, Miranda is certainly a country with a plan. So I think we give that far more attention. But I just, you know, picked that out really, partly because actually we, we have just written a piece on Miranda. Um, you know, something like the, the Sudanese revolution. I mean, we hadn't written much about Sudan for a long time. Yeah. But suddenly Sudan becomes a very interesting, you know, in African sort of terms, important political um, news story. You know, it's the kind of first sign of, you know, what was called the Arab Spring kind of creeping below the Sahara, coming back. I mean, if you, you know, I was in Sudan, it was very sort of euphoric. Um, you know, there was this sense of youth um, trying to plot its own course, trying to gain agency in the continent where, of course, you've had aging elites have been uh, in control. So it was, it was interesting because it was, you know, the fall of Bashir and what would happen next and Sudan being potentially kind of an interesting economy and whatever. But I think more it was sort of emblematic of changes that you could see taking place around a continent where the um, median age is 19. So I think every story, I mean, I've given you some examples and they're, they're non-business examples really, but, but all of those examples are of stories where um, the story is one thing, but they're also kind of symbolic or emblematic of something else. And while one has to be very, very careful about writing about Africa, um, because, of course, Africa is, in my case, 50 countries, uh, uh, 54 countries, 55 countries, depending on how you count them. Um, um, but there are things that can be said about the continent. Uh, so in other words, stories need to be slightly bigger than, mm. um, than they are. I guess that's always true, really, mm. of any story. Um, they need to resonate somehow. They need to have a kind of... A, yeah. Uh, I mean, I suppose a Donald Trump tweet is supposedly interesting in and of itself. I find them highly uninteresting <laughs> yeah. most of the time. But, um, um, but you know, if you're writing about, you know, a, 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 in the context of the FT, a relatively small economy, and to be honest, that applies to South Africa even. Yes. Um, you know, I came from Asia, as we were discussing, um, sort mm. of offline. But uh, um, so I was the Asia editor of the FT, and there were obviously huge economies. There was China, there was India, there was Japan. Mm -hmm. um, you know, even a fairly small economy um, would have been quite big by African yeah. standards. Taiwan, I think, is roughly the same size, for example, in GDP terms as Nigeria. Mm. Um, That's a fun fact. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, that's... 
it makes sense. I, I guess the uh, response might be from someone who is enmeshed in the details, as mm-hmm. I often am and most people I work with would be. Um, does there need to be a, a narrative in that sense? Does it need to be emblematic in that sense? I wonder, can you write an article about Taiwan that's just about Taiwan and it doesn't have to sort of have that broader relevance? Is there a, an expectation when editing content on Africa that it does, that it is forward-looking or outward-looking in that sense? I think it depends a bit. I mean, look, if, if Cyril Ramaphosa, you know, was lost the presidency of South Africa today for some reason, if he was ejected, (laughs) then you would just write it. You know, yesterday, Sir Ramposa loses power. Um, By the way, he hasn't. (laughs) This is just a pure (laughs) example. But, for example, when Ramaphosa won the ANC presidency, we reported that. Now, that doesn't necessarily have any resonance, resonance, you know, for Uganda or for um, Cote Mm -hmm. d'Ivoire. It's purely a story about uh, a change within the ANC, Mm -hmm. South Africa, is a country that, for historical reasons, um, actually attracts quite a lot of interest. Yeah. So there's a story that's just sort of of interest for itself. Pe- people invested a lot emotionally uh, and politically in the kind of the transformation of South Africa in 1994. Mm-hmm. There's still people who remember that, even those who don't know about the kind of the end of apartheid, you know, the ANC, Nelson Mandela, um, the sort of erosion of, uh, of the ANC's values, um, the mm-hmm. difficulties of the South African economy, the difficulty of, of repairing what was an economy based on, on, on racism and deliberate exploitation of, you know, one section of the population by another. And what do you do with that? Mm-hmm. This is interesting in and of itself. It's a very interesting, and the more you delve into it, the more interesting it gets. Mm-hmm. So, so no, in that sense, I'm not saying, you know, you can only write about South Africa if it has res- resonance for some of no uh, this is an interesting story but i suppose even a story like that one has to bring all these elements to bear and the more the more that you bring to a story in terms of historical knowledge in terms of access mm. uh, you know in terms of um, past coverage deep reporting mm-hmm. uh, the more you bring that story and all its facets alive because it could seem to be you know a, a mechanical story of this happened yesterday and i find that context and knowledge and depth kind of creep into stories almost unbeknownst to the to the author, but you can kind of tell when a story is written by someone who really knows what they're talking about. It it just feels so much more satisfying, interesting, real than a knocked out story by someone that's come fresh, fresh to it. And look, I'm three and a half years into this job. Um, I'm very much, I consider myself very much at the learning phase. I mean, there's things I know more about, there's things I know uh, less about, and there are things I know nothing at all about, and I'm um, I'm I'm conscious of all of those levels. There's nothing that I know enough about, so uh, this is the privilege of journalism. Uh, you know, while I learn, mm. um, I'm hoping that my act of learning and trying to find out and being inquisitive and talking to sources and digging and reading and exploring is of interest to our readers, uh, and I certainly hope it is. One of the things that was uh, interested me in talking to you, and one of the things that has been quite distinctive about the FT, I think, in the last few years. I mean, A is generally the the quality, certainly, if not the quantity necessarily, of, of coverage of the continent generally, but also on specific issues. And the elections in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, um, the presidential and, to a lesser extent, parliamentary elections, was... A big story on the continent. <laughs> it was a big story, certainly for people I know, 
uh, it didn't get a lot of traction, I would say, in the international press, at least beyond a couple of days. And your team did a, uh, I would say, quite extensive and also, I don't want to say hard-hitting, I don't know what the right word is, but uh, you know, fairly unambiguously received data, analyzed data, took a position on what had actually happened, did not equivocate, said this election was highly likely the results have been uh, manipulated to a massive extent. Uh, it's highly likely there's been electoral fraud, the word was used. How did that, what does that process look like? How do you, how do you set an editorial yes. direction? We're going to handle this story in this way. Well, it, I mean, the, to start, we're interested in the DRC. Um, uh, you know, it's a country of 80 million people. Mm -hmm. It's very rich in mineral resources. It's diabolically poor. Mm -hmm. It's one of the kind of great dichotomies of uh, you know that one sees all over the world. But but this is is very is is the, it's a huge contradiction. You know, mm -hmm. um, and you know we can't use our mobile phones. We can't drive our Tesla cars without the Congo, basically. Yes. Um, so I think it's it it is and ought to be of great interest to our readers, um, and that includes the political process. So we were always going to cover. Um, the election, you know, mm. Kabila stepping down uh, or not. Yeah, it's been, uh, uh, you know, this has been sort of pushed for internationally and especially domestically yeah. um, for years. It looked as though Kabila w wasn't going to have an election, and then suddenly there was one. So we're, we're so the, the so the background is we're of great interest, and we, you know, it's, it's of great interest to us. We're going to cover this story. I think there were there've been like twenty five elections in Africa in the last eighteen months or something. This is definitely you know one of the top two or three that we mm -hmm. wanted um, uh, to cover. So we had a correspondent there. Um, he's not based in Congo, but we sent him uh, Tom Wilson. Uh, he'd spent a few years in Congo anyway, so he knows it very well. So he did a you know a couple of pieces beforehand in the run up. He went for the election and he and he went again afterwards. So you know we were prepared to commit resources to sending him there again and again. Then at one point we uh, received uh, data that purported to come directly off the um, electoral servers. Mm -hmm. And this data flatly contradicted the purported results. Um, for readers who don't remember, the results um, were that the government candidate had, in a sense, surprisingly not won because we all expected the... Uh, the thing to be rigged, mm -hmm. or we, we, we kind of feared or suspected it might be. Yeah. Um, suddenly, a, an opposition candidate, Chisikedi, is uh, uh, is elected, and you know, big surprise, the opposition has won. Mm -hmm. Except there was a real wrinkle in the tale, which is that a, a lot of people looking at kind of the mood music and the evidence on the ground actually thought that another opposition candidate, Martin Fayula, had had actually won. We got this data. That purported to show uh, that Fayula had indeed won. Mm -hmm. So the question is, what do you do with this? I mean, this data obviously could have come from Martin Fayula for a start. It could have been concocted. It told a particular story that was of benefit to um, one losing candidate or a candidate who was said to have lost. And um, so you have to treat this with enormous suspicion. You know, if we had got no traction with this data at all, it's an entirely unpublishable Mm -hmm. um, story. But it didn't seem ridiculous. In fact, it kind of fitted in with what we thought might be happening anyway. So we put a lot of resources um, into trying to uh, stand this story up. Now, I was in South Africa at the time. Our correspondent was between Congo and London. 
uh, and we had a data analyst uh, in in London. Um, we thought that if we could really nail this story, um, that this was, uh, you know, this was a story of, of, of really great import mm -hmm. because there are many African elections. In fact, there are many election, elections outside Africa um, where one can say, you know, this, the process looks suspicious. There's been interference. I mean, even in the U.S. election mm -hmm. and in, you know, poorer countries where incumbency plays this huge role in terms of access to um, the media, resources, or outright kind of theft and, you know, at the other end of the um, extreme. So, you know, there are lots of elections we've covered where you can say X said, you know, this election was stolen. I completely object to this. That's most. And there's a, <laughs> you know, there's a suspicion that it might not have all been yeah. kosher, but that's all it is. And then, you know, the, the, the winner is um, inaugurated and, and, and on we go. Yeah. And here was a possibility and only a possibility because the story may not have been a may not have been true and B may not have been verifiable. Here was a possibility to, po to, to possibly a kind of a smoking gun mm -hmm. if this really did come off the servers. So we went about it in the only two ways we really had, which is on the ground reporting mm -hmm. um, and data analysis. So on the data analysis side, this was done by uh, another journalist called David Blood. I'm not a data analyst, but I, but I knew that we needed to really interrogate this data. Mm. I think there were 2,300 pages of this stuff. Mm. And then there was a summation, the summation showing the results or the purported results, which was a Martin Fayulu victory and Chisikedi coming second. By a massive... By a massive a amount. Massive. Almost like a reversal of the, uh, yeah. of the result. Not a couple that, of percentage that was points. Not a couple of percentage points, yeah. So the first thing was, well, did these numbers all add up? Yeah. I mean, I lack even the ability... <laughs> To, you know, other than adding them up, which would have yes. taken me six months or something. Um, so, you know, the, the data has to be sorted, and 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 that. But this is a this is a real starting point. Then all sorts of kind of internal checks had to be done on this data, mm -hmm. and there are checks that that can kind of determine whether it's sort of r randomly generated mm -hmm. in a kind of false way or randomly generated in the way that. That some, sort of, some sort of magical the process. real That's randomly a, generated data, i.e., people voting, yeah. uh, you know, individuals voting the way they uh, want to vote, would produce. Again, that's not nearly enough. Fortunately, the Catholic Church um, had monitored. I think it was about, if I, my memory serves me right, about fifteen percent of polling stations, and they'd published. Mm. Uh, results. Again, we didn't know that these results were accurate. And there were people that said, well, the Catholic Church had its own particular axe to grind. But generally, this is thought to be an organization that, that had some kind of credibility. Mm -hmm. One thing to do was to look at this, the 15% of results that we had from them and the 15% of results that we, that, you know, the same 15% of results. Mm -hmm. Anyway, we did that and matched match those as well to within a very, very, very narrow margin of error. Mm. So we began to kind of feel more comfortable, a lot more comfortable about the data. There were other things that were done as well. But then we needed to, um, you know, do the parallel kind of reporting. So we needed to talk to the people who had leaked the data and we needed to find out they were who they said they were. We needed to get the story about how the data was leaked. We needed to find out who they were, what they were, what acts they had to grind, mm -hmm. etc. That was a real process because these people uh, didn't want to speak at first. They were persuaded to speak. They didn't want to give their names. Then they would give their names. But it was a real sort of process, of an iterative process of going back 
and back and back until we were comfortable. Um, and, you know, I'm really kind of, in a sense, only telling you the half of it. Uh, there was a point when two of the journalists, me and Tom Wilson, were ready to go with the story. We felt, yes, we can go with this story, you know, with appropriate kind of caveats. And the news desk was not comfortable with the story. Um, it, it just needed more and so, sort of sent us back to get to get more, and and that's what that's what happened in the end. And by the time that we published the story, story we were we were very comfortable with what we had. And you know, if you're familiar with a with a piece of journalism that we produced and a couple of pieces that came afterwards, actually, you know, we very much kind of showed our working. So what we did is there for the readers to see and to, in a sense, make a make a judgment on. And we were confident that what we had seen was, you know, a, a, an election that had been stolen. And we were sort of prepared to say so. Uh, I think there's very few people, certainly, you know, when they're speaking candidly, would deny that. Mm. There may be one or two. I'm sure the winning candidate, the president, <laughs> would certainly deny it. But I mean, I know that not speaking candidly. I know that, for example, people very, very close to him in the administration, when they're off the record, they will, uh, yes. they won't dispute our story too much. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, you know, but it, so this was a lot of work over about five or six days, three journalists, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and I think it was important. That that probably is an example of a story. I think that was kind of bigger. <laughs> bigger than itself. I mean, it was certainly about Congo, and it was about a particular election, but it possibly spoke mm. to kind of broader broader themes. I think, you know, you, you wanted to know kind of what success would look like. I mean, I think the at one point it looked as though it might have tremendous success in that the African Union mm. seemed to be taking it very seriously. They were going to send in people to DRC. I think they were going to, you know, there was there was a court case going on. There was, I think, going that there was going to be advice to rerun the election or to at least be much much more transparent about the numbers that had come out. Mm. And uh, and in the end, the AU sort of backed off, mm. and uh, you know, an imprimatur was given to um, um, to the result, and we did move on. But I think there, the FT raised a, a valuable and important issue and I think lots of people will remember that and I, and I certainly very much stick by our story must be quite nerve-wracking no any of you is there anything in your experience that compares to the front page uh, accusation fairly justified accusation uh, in the view of everyone I know of electoral theft, I mean, it's quite a, uh, well, quite a bold thing to have your, your name yeah, underneath. Yes, yeah, I mean, yeah, I knew that it was a very important story. Yeah. Uh, I knew that it would be immediately read and mm. widely commented on, uh, attacked for mm. holes in it and, and whatever. I, I was really very confident about it, and so would the other mm. two journalists. I mean, Tom and David did huge amounts of work on that, that story, and more, I mean, more than me, really. You know, they were very confident. Too. So yeah, but is it is it nerve when you when that kind of button's pressed? I mean, we don't in fact press the buttons ourselves, but we know when the button is about to press. I think actually it came out an hour earlier than we than we had been <laughs> suspecting because of time differences and things. But uh, but suddenly it was out, and yeah. yeah, I mean, there's this kind of rush of commentary. Actually, yeah. initially, well, I mean, actually throughout, really, the commentary was very good, and I think people kind of knew we were onto something. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I've been at the FT for twenty odd years. They've definitely been other examples of stories like that in very, very, very different contexts. But, um, uh, 
but stories that are as controversial and have, and you know, you have that kind of lump in the throat, like, I really hope this is right. <laughs> of course, you know, yeah. uh, journalists are human too, you know, but, uh, but we would never publish anything that we didn't have enormous confidence in. And as I say, we did, and it was a very deliberate choice to show our working so that people, we didn't just present something as a view sort of delivered from God, but we, we mm. tried to show how we had arrived at this conclusion, the data we had, what we'd done with the data, what we'd done with our reporting and how we sort of got mm. comfortable with what we considered the fact that this was the real McCoy, this was data off the voting machines. <laughs> mm-hmm. The course of events from there was depressing, clearly, for, for, for many people, but also... Uh, probably by design was sort of played out in slow motion and not that publicly in a way. So the AU kind of quietly dropped its opposition. The SADC equivocated and, and nothing ever really came of it. But in the end, there's a constitutional court decision and the diplomatic community says, oh, well, we'll, you know, we'll accept this privately with some reservations, but publicly we'll accept this. It feels like in terms of available, breaking the story, in terms of understanding the course of events it feels like everything that could have been done was done in this case and the the failure or the the challenge lay with the political cost of actually doing something from the point of view of diplomatic actors is that how you read the the situation and what what was your takeaway from the fact that you published this thing as you say as good as it could have been huge story and then kind of nothing happens well, I mean, I don't have delusions of grandeur. You know, we didn't publish the story thinking, you know, now we bring down the government. Um, no. I mean, that's not in what I want to do, much less what I kind of think is going to happen. Um, you know, we published something that we thought was interesting and true. Um, and to, 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 to some extent, that's where our job ends. Mm-hmm. Um, what other people choose to do with that information. I mean, I don't think it would come as any surprise to anyone, really, that elections that have been thought to be deeply flawed have in the end been accepted. I mean, the process that you described was true up to, to a certain extent, but but if you remember, the American State Department and the American ambassador, for example, were saying entirely different things yes. at virtually the same time. One was yes. accepting the results, one was saying it was um, fraudulent, basically. Yes, that was deep, deeply um, confusing. So, so this was played out actually quite publicly, not necessarily behind and, and in an uncoordinated fashion. Yeah. You know, I mean, is it depressing that that voters in Africa and in other countries go to the polls, put their faith or what faith they can have in an electoral system and are then sometimes defrauded of their real mm. uh, intention. Of course, that's depressing. Um, you know, if you've seen the kind of, I mean, sometimes it can be extraordinarily moving to see voters. I remember going to watch the Ghanaian elections and just hearing voters about what they expected of their vote, what they thought democracy was. Um, really sort of sophisticated and heartfelt at the same time kind of understanding of the democratic process. If that is completely trampled, then of course that is depressing. And of course one wishes it weren't. And, you know, if we can contribute in any way Mm. to empowering people so that their vote counts, then, then that's all to the good. But I don't think we can be as simplistic as to say, you know, we publish a story on the front page of the FT, therefore X, Y, and Z is going to happen. That would really be to sort of, a, a, you know, to, to, to self-aggrandize. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, to kind of 
take on a responsibility that we we just can't can't have. Um, uh, I mean, if you thought that that was going to happen every time you published a story, you know, you'd be kind of loath to print almost anything. I mean, if you knew that it was going to have such a big impact, you know, we write stories that that could have a huge impact every day. I think, mm. but we're not directing global policy. Um, we're contributing to a discussion. Mm-hmm. We're contributing facts we're contributing analysis we're contributing opinion we're contributing i hope you know in a kind of an intelligent analysis of the world and, a, and to some extent a mirror to the world and that's all we can hope to do what was striking is that in the months following this uh you have sort of a takeover by not, not by stealth, but by other means, I guess, of government and DRC. So the, what was overlooked as a result of, or in, at the same time as the presidential election, was a very improbable uh, dominance of the legislature by uh, Kabila's, in air quotes, uh, faction. Yep. And the net result of that has been inability to form a government, uh, mm-hmm. appointment of an incredibly sort of weak uh, figure as, as prime minister, and you know, probably a cabinet that will reflect um, that balance of power. Is it harder to report on or get traction on that kind of slow burn process? I mean, you adverted to the DRC elections as being among the most important, the most visible on the continent, which they clearly were. And that's, that's a story in itself. But then you have this slower, more opaque frankly, more difficult for uh, people who don't know the country well to understand process unfolding. And I think you did publish something sort of June or so on this, sort of commenting on, on, on the direction of things. But certainly it doesn't have the same kind of visibility. And, and I, I think you're quite right. It doesn't. Uh, you know, mo- moments are moments in journalism, and then sometimes they pass. You know, slow-moving trends are much harder to capture than yes. things that, you know, happened yesterday. That's absolutely true. I mean, we... we we do report on Congo quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, our correspondent, you know, who's, who covers the region, I mean, covers 13 or 14 countries, but Congo is one of two of the most important in his beat, along with Ethiopia. So so he's certainly been back. I mean, there's a whole other story. There's, for example, Ebola in the, uh, you know, uh, in, well the aware, east, yes. in the east of the country. Um, and we've done some in-depth reporting on that. You know, where things like the election and what people thought about authority and whatever are kind of mentioned. So sometimes these things come up tangentially. Mm. I mean, what you have to do as a journalist, I suppose, is you either have to kind of get at these stories through writing about something else or you have to kind of stop and say, sort of in a piece of analysis or what has happened now. Mm -hmm. I I think if you've read the FT, you're in little doubt that... um, uh, that the election was not a decisive end point um, for Joseph Kabila, yes. um, and that uh, he still has considerable levers on power, and that to some extent there is a tussle between him uh, and the president, or perhaps it's an accommodation. Um, but you don't think that uh, um, the former president has now left office mm. and there's a new um, gang in town. And of course, we write about mining, we write yeah. about, uh, and some of it will be seen through the kind of prism of the mining sector, who's in, who's running Gekamines, for example, mm-hmm. you know, what the mining code looks like, mm-hmm. you know, who's being prosecuted and not being prosecuted. And all of this kind of, we hope, adds to a picture mm-hmm. uh, of the DRC. I mean, the DRC is one of 50 countries in Africa, an important one, as I've said. 
you know, Africa is one region in the world uh, and, and not the richest re- region. Um, and the FT probably gives more attention to, you know, what's happening in Asia and what's happening in North America, for sure, and what's happening in Europe than it does mm. to what's happening in Africa. But, you know, we have African stories every single day in the FT and probably mm-hmm. two or three most days. Uh, and so in that kind of, I suppose, what is inevitably a sort of a piecemeal approach, we try to bring the highlights, both in terms of events and of trends and of unfolding stories, mm. as best we can. Yeah, and it's absolutely not a, a criticism. It's more a sort of a practical question, um, and it arises as well with the current Sudan yeah. situation, right? You have a very dramatic mm-hmm. series of events, December to some extent, January, um, then sort of a break of a couple of months. There's an impasse, then you have... April. April, large-scale violence, and again, you have a break of a couple of months with a sort of impasse. And then again, the last few days, you have yeah. sort of a dramatic event. Well, you had June, a dramatic event as well, yeah. when there was the killing of 130 mm. people. I mean, all of, it, all of it is high drama, sort of end-to-end from where I'm sitting. But when you're thinking about how you structure yeah. coverage of that sort of thing, um, I guess the story is the initial mass protests. The story is the violence. The story is... A transition agreement. Yeah. It's sort of hinged to key moments like that. Is that a fair? Yeah, but we've been fairly consistent with our Sudan story. I mean, I mean, even when readers and we can, we can, we've got the kind of swingometer, so we can tell like who's reading what. Even when readers weren't actually particularly interested, we kept hammering away at that story. And if you look at the Sudan story, I, I don't know how many. I'm going to hazard a guess. We've written, I would say, fifty times um, mm. since the December thing kicked off. Um, I'm just thinking how many times I've written. You're right, you know, we write about the initial thing, then it seems to kind of fade out, then there's a bit, you know, maybe several people are killed, or there seems to be some kind of movement. I remember I was in Ivory Coast, and this shows you the complexity of how I was in Ivory Coast at a conference, the Mo Ibrahim conference, and I'd, I learned that the protesters had got through to the military barracks and were camped out in front of the military barracks, and it seemed to be a very decisive moment because they'd never been able to get anywhere near there before, and it could mean, and in fact did mean, a sort of a crack in the um, security apparatus protecting Bashir. Mm-hmm. And so this seemed to be a really important moment. And I remember it was the last thing I wanted to write about because there I was sort of stuck the other side of the continent. But I remember just this kind of rush of blood. I can't remember Tom was away or Tom was in another country. So I wrote this story and then I kept writing it. And we wrote, I think, practically every day until Bashir went. Um, then I actually uh, flew down myself and spent 10 days there mm-hmm. um, wrote a big analysis piece. Then Tom has been down and uh, has done another kind of uh, at least a couple of weeks stint there, I think. Um, and we've covered the kind of milepost events, you know, the signing of various things, the inauguration, I think, was uh, the, you know, this, this declaration um, that prepares the way for the sovereign council and whatever. We covered that certainly in the leader mm-hmm. So we've covered all the kind of milepost events. We've had a lot of analysis, kind of tried to spin the story in different ways, you know, even look at the kind of the business potential of Sudan and various kind of FT takes on the story. Mm-hmm. But, but primarily it's a moving narrative, you know, a really kind of interesting uh, event where you've had this sort of flourishing of a, something that looks like a kind of democratic movement in a, in a place that had been ossified by 30 years of, Bashir is very interesting, very moving, very uh, descriptive of what might happen in other parts of the continent, given that this was a 
something led by, you know, led in the cities, although all around Sudan, I should say, but by professionals, by youth, by women. And uh, we've really sort of plugged away at that coverage. And I write a column every other week, and I must have devoted four or five columns to Sudan. And we've done a big piece of analysis, our big read, um, which is a 2,000-word big read. So uh, I actually feel, because it is piecemeal, we have four correspondents covering the whole of Africa. There's me and three other people. And um, we have to pick and choose, or we have to kind of, sometimes we just are somewhere, and that's what we'll be writing about because we're not somewhere else, you know, and that's just kind of the inevitability of, yeah. of, of how these things work out. But, but given all those constraints, actually, I think we've kind of hammered away at the Sudan story. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I'm reasonably pleased with, with how we've done. I think you have, and that's, that's sort of why I asked the question. It's, and I think the key word you used is interest, right? Like, to me, it's massively interesting. Uh, to you, it's interesting uh, to... Other editors at other newspapers, clearly it is not interesting or you know, not interesting to their bosses. How is it that you end up having the sort of latitude or the space to devote that level of attention when others perhaps don't? I mean, just talking about the FT, and one of the things that I've, again, it sounds like advertorial, but one of the things I have loved, I've been at the FT more than 20 years. Mm-hmm. I've very, very rarely been told I can't do something. I mean, I've actually very rarely been told you must do something. And um, I've had enormous latitude right. to kind of basically kind of go with my gut and my intellectual interests. Uh, and I would say that, that, that I and our correspondent, you know, our East Africa correspondent, have just decided that this is a really, really interesting story and we want to write about it a lot. And nobody's objected. Mm-hmm. Um, so to some extent, that's, that's it. Um, you know, if, if we think there's something that's really, really very interesting. And I'm sure in doing that and devoting our time to that, we've missed out all sorts of other stories that are also very, very interesting and maybe slower burning, maybe mm-hmm. invisible to us, maybe things we should have been digging that we haven't. You know, it's a huge continent. There, you know, there's opportunity cost. If you devote a lot of time to something, you're not devoting time to something else. But for one reason or another, we've decided that this is, you know, one of four or five stories that we've been tracking quite rigorously in the continent in the last six months. And have therefore devoted the resources both in actually going down and doing the reporting. And if we've not been there, then, you know, doing doing reporting as best we can from wherever we are on the phone and mm. and so forth. You know, which all, all obviously takes takes time and energy and, and the FT's resources in editing and marshalling that stuff through. Um, but we've just decided that that's um, that's something that we're that we're interested in, and, uh, and so we've done it. You have been. You've been in this role three and a half years now, start of 2016. And you were not new to the region completely, obviously, um, we were discussing before, but certainly in, in this kind of role. Yep. New to the I'd region. been in Asia before this, and yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, anything you would have done differently in terms of priorities or seeing what the story was uh, if you look back over that period? Um. It's a good question. I'm not sure I've got a good answer because I think the way that that I personally have gone about it is kind of, in a sense, the only way I know how to go about it, which is sort of, you know, realize that there are some stories that one has to get to grips with, South Africa, Nigeria, um, um, kind of the macro economy, um, certain kind of business stories, you know, certain sectors, oil and gas and whatever. And, and I kind of need to kind of get my head around all of those mm. 
and one has to kind of methodically work through while re- reacting and responding to stuff that happens. Mm. Would I have done it in a different order? Would I have gone to a different country before I went to, you know, would I have gone to country A before I went to country B? Would mm. I have not gone to country B three times and gone to country C? I mean, you know, if I'd have known that there was going to be a coup in Sudan, I might have gone to Sudan so I knew more about it when it happened. Um, So in that sense, you know, with hindsight, then, yeah, of course, I'd have Mm. been far more on the ball. Um, But given that I didn't know, I mean, I'm not sure it's very interesting or valuable thing to say but there's not that much that i've written that i just think oh horror of horrors you know if i'm if thinking about that now that's good um what a ridiculous thing to say there's yeah. been stuff that's probably not that great and less good stuff and whatever but um but i think given that you just kind of have to write yourself into a job you know i don't think there's too much that mm. uh i just think you have to um in a sense sort of plunge in and Maybe a more difficult question, um, given that that one was already difficult. <laughs> Any takeaway or advice you would give yourself sort of 10 or 20 years ago? And has working, right. working this death changed your approach, your thinking as a journalist? I think one should always think big. Uh, and sometimes, I don't know, uh, you know, you can get wrapped up in the daily stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, having big impact, a big story is much more valuable, I think, than lots of little stories kind of not not seeing obstacles. I mean, if we want to interview Paul Kagame, if we want to interview Avi Ahmed, I think we should kind of think we can do that and mm-hmm. should do that and press for that mm-hmm. on the basis that we're, you know, a world newspaper. And, access, so you know, so I mean, you know, I think we ought to be very, uh, you know, I, in the past sometimes I've been kind of maybe less ambitious than I ought to have been given mm-hmm. sort of the platform. Uh, that I have, uh, you know, I would never ever want to be arrogant or take anything for granted. And I'm fully prepared for people to say, you know, who the hell are you and why should we talk to you? That's fine. That's part of the job. But I think that we should always really aim for the very top access, the very, um, you know, um, to dig deep into a story, mm-hmm. to devote time to a story. So I would say pick big stories and really go after them rather than necessarily trying to cover the waterfront yeah i was quite i was struck by your most recent lunch with the ft um with bobby wine yeah it was a striking contrast to for example the one with Maurice, um and certainly to all the rest uh in that yes it's a big story but not necessarily what you would expect from the from the ft from the ft yeah, well, I, I, you know, I always like to surprise. Uh, in a good way. <laughs> yeah, look, he's an interesting character. Again, he is a perfect example of someone who's bigger than, yeah. you know, bigger than a rap singer in Uganda. Yeah. Uh, and not just because he's going for the presidency, but to some extent, even though he's 37, he does represent the kind of the youth um, in a continent. I'm only a few years off the youth. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in a continent where the median age is 19 or 19 yeah, and a half. Yeah. And so I think he, you know, I mean, I was amazed that... Uh, Various countries I've been in where I would not have expected Bobby Wine to be a name to conjure with. Mm. People have asked me about him. Mm. Uh, you know, he sort of resonates around the continent. Um, actually, Abiy Ahmed, the Prime Minister of Ethiopia, is another one. Mm-hmm. Um, who I've found tremendous interest wherever I've gone on the continent. That was another reason that we really gunned to get an interview with him, and we did in the end. So, yeah, those are two people I thought, let's really go for them 
um, and 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 go big with them. You know, so Abby Ahmed, we did a big read and a front page interview, and kind of the whole works. And the editor of the FT came down with me, and. Bobby, I thought it'd be kind of fun to do a, a lunch with the FT, which is one of our kind of premier brand things, very well read. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there have been no lunches with the FT uh, in restaurants where the total bill is, I think it was £1.4p or something in, mm-hmm. you know, what he calls a ghetto mm-hmm. in a, you know, in a sort of a Kampala slum. That's kind of an unusual treatment for lunch with the FT. And I thought it would be... Um, Interesting, and I kind of think it was. What was your phrase? Fun and interesting, I think, yeah. is what you said. We said earlier. Good. Well, I should let you go. Any anything you wanted to, you had in mind to add that I haven't? Nope. I'd like to say something profound, but I think uh, <laughs> we'd all like to had, say you've, something you've profound. You've had, you've had what I've got to give. Sometimes <laughs> it doesn't happen, sadly. You are listening to One Step Forward. We are all about stories of working for social good in hard times and tough places. My name is Ian Quick. Thanks for listening. And just a quick reminder, this podcast thing only really works by word of mouth. So if this episode resonated with you, please share with someone you know who might be interested. Rate us on iTunes or anywhere else for that matter. Join the conversation at onestepforward.fm. Thanks and bye for now.